0: Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and well-being. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Uh, I'm Kieran O'Boyle and tonight we're going to be looking at emerging safely from the pandemic and we'll be using the six pillars of lifestyle medicine to look at how we can maximize our health and improve our well-being during this transition phase. This is part of the RCSI's My Health series of lectures and the idea is to empower you to improve your own health, and to maximize your own well-being. You're very welcome to the RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues from the RCSI, uh, Dr. Annie Curtis, who's a senior lecturer in the RCSI School of Pharmacy and Biomolecular Sciences, and a researcher specializing in the area of the body clock and our immune systems. Uh, Dr. Helen French is a chartered physiotherapist and senior lecturer at the RCSI School of Physiotherapy. And Helen specializes in exercise uh, for the health of our musculoskeletal system, our muscles and our bones. And Dr. Trudy Meehan, who is a senior clinical psychologist specializing in child and adolescent mental health and a lecturer at the RCSI Center for positive psychology and health. Welcome to the RCSI My Health series. So we're going to use the pillars of lifestyle medicine uh, to look at where we are now and how we maximize our health during the pandemic. And tonight we're going to be looking at physical activity and exercise. We're going to be looking at positive relationships and we're also going to be looking at our body clocks and how sleep works and its, its role in our health. So to begin, can I turn to, to Helen? And Helen, can you say what it, why is it that physical activity uh, is so important?
2: Yeah, thanks Kieran. There's, I guess before the COVID pandemic, we had another pandemic and that was of physical inactivity where people weren't undertaking enough physical activity. And it's well established now in the research that being physically active confers a lot of benefits. Um, for example, it reduces the risk of heart disease, risk of stroke, risk of type 2 diabetes. It can reduce the risk of certain cancers like breast cancer, colon cancer. It helps our mental health, so can reduce the risk of depression. It helps our brain health, so our ability to to multitask our memory, our learning it helps our musculoskeletal health as you mentioned that that's my particular area and that what we mean by that is our bones our joints our muscles and our tendons and that's particularly useful or important when uh, for example as a growing child so as, as children are growing to adulthood they need that time to to grow and develop and exercise and physical activity plays a really important role and likewise as we get older we start to lose muscle mass and we start to lose our bone density, and that is also a critical period for our musculoskeletal health. And of course, now in the last 18 months, we've all become so much more aware of our immune system and how important that is in this pandemic, that actually um, physical activity can boost our immune system as well. And they are just some of the many, many benefits. And, And the way I think of physical activity is, if it was a drug, we would all take it without question.
1: We certainly would. And it's extraordinary when we look at the research, the range of impacts it it has. And then Helen, when we think about physical activity and we think about exercise, Is there there a distinction to be made there by people like yourself who do research in this area?
2: Yeah, definitely. And even for for the people listening in today, there is a distinction because physical activity refers to any bodily movement where we are expending energy. So that could be activity during our leisure time, our, our work time, our activities around the house. And that is often the incidental activity that many people don't think of as, you know, you're walking around the shops, you're doing the housework, you're doing the gardening. Whereas exercise is a subcategory of physical activity. So exercise is usually planned, it's purposeful, it's repetitive, it's structured. And people, you know, plan that, that exercise and sometimes physical activity isn't planned. And exercise really is, is mainly undertaken to improve or maintain physical fitness.
1: That's really interesting distinction. So intention is very important there in terms of the difference between, between the two. That, that's really great. We'll come back around then to talk later about what, what we can do to improve our activity. So, so that's one of the pillars. Uh, Trudy, if I can turn to you, another one of the pillars then is how we cultivate and maintain relationships. And that seems to be, the evidence is that's very, very important. So why are relationships so important for for our health and well-being?
3: It's a great question because it, it doesn't seem obvious that they would be. But one of the things that's really interesting is that we're actually wired for connection. And that basically means that our biological systems require and respond really well to moments of human connection. And a lot of people are familiar with the autonomic nervous system in terms of the fight flight response. So our response to stress and threat and that activation that takes place. But the other side of that system is the rest and relax where we calm down. And that's been renamed by researchers in polyvagal theory who have called it the calm and connect response. And what we know is that in order to calm, we need connection and that we calm and soothe ourselves better when we co-regulate. So we experience emotions across bodies, not just in one body, which is fascinating and really important for us to understand. So what we've learned is that we can reduce the impact of stress by having moments of connection with other people. And when we reduce stress, that's really good for our physical health and, of course, our emotional and mental health as well. And the research on this is really interesting. They've tracked, um, there's a lovely study from Harvard where they tracked these men throughout their whole lives and they found that it wasn't their cholesterol levels at 50 that predicted how well they would age. It was how happy they were with their relationships, predicted their health and their disease for years at age 80. And we know outside of that study, because that study was limited, it looked at men, But people who've looked at the blue zones, some of the longest living people in the world in places like Sardinia in Italy or Okinawa in Japan, and the people who have maintained relationships with friends, families, and in their local community, they're some of the longest living people and some of the most, um, they're living with disease for years, which is really important, not just longevity.
1: That's really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense because we have evolved as a species For connection, so it makes sense. There's a we have a biology that's built around connection. If I can follow up then, Trudy, and say ask you, you know, this has been a very tough time. This pandemic, in terms of connection, that a lot of people have lost connection and it's, it's also sadly been a, a dreadful time for some families where they have unfortunately lost members of their families. You know, people have died and you know, it's, been, it's been hidden away. How important has that been, do you think, in terms of the impact of the, uh, the pandemic on our, our general health and our psychological health in particular? Yeah.
3: It's been hugely impactful because we're losing that, that connection in terms of our daily interactions. And we know from the work of Barbara Fredrickson that something as simple as eye contact in real life is really important for us in terms of developing that connection and having that brain and body synchronization that's health giving. But it's also, we need to acknowledge the losses that people have had. And one of the things we know about loss and when people pass away is that we're not just losing the person we're also losing our relationship with that person and the identity we had in that relationship. So for example, if somebody was to lose their mother, they lose the position and the opportunity to perform that identity as daughter or son. So there's a double mourning and a double loss. You lose the person and you lose that part of yourself. So there's a, and that connection is gone. And one of the things we know that's helpful from narrative therapy Uh, talks about remembering the person who has passed and having remembering conversations. And it's a very simple thing, but sometimes people feel like they need to move on um, and they can be embarrassed to remember and bring people who have passed back into their daily conversations. So it's as simple as something like, oh, if my mother was here, she would really love this dinner or she would laugh at how I burned the dinner. Um, You know, and and it's okay, and it's actually really important to have those moments of remembering. And there's a hyphen in in there because you're bringing members of your club of life back into your daily life by remembering them. So you're pulling them back in intentionally. And that's actually really important. That's
1: really interesting. And in Ireland, of course, we're very good at, we have been, we've a long tradition of managing death and dying in particular, but that's all been prevented for many people during the, during the pandemic. We'll come back around to how we might improve or maintain our, our relationships uh, in a moment. Annie, your research interest is in areas primarily to do with the body clock and our immune system. So, so for those of us who don't know one thing about the body clock, wh- what is it?
0: Okay, so Karen, the, the body clock really is the ability of our bodies to tell time. We are essentially a walking clock like I talk to my daughters about, we're like Cogsworth from uh, Beauty and the Beast. And it, the analogy is good because we have a face and we have a hands. Every single cell in our body actually has the ability to tell the time of day. And that's really important because what the body clock does is, like Trudy talked about synchronizing, what the body clock does is it synchronizes all our bodily functions to the right time of day. So the way I try to remember it is our body clock, which is, it's almost like the conductor of an orchestra. And all our bodily functions are all the different instruments in front front of the the conductor. And what the body clock does is ensures that all of those bodily functions are timed in the correct way. You might ask, well, how does our bodies even know what time of day it is? And that's, I think, what's really important for this, this discussion The main way that our body senses time of day is through external light. So we often think about, you know, our eyes performing the visual function, taking in all that information for for visual capacity. But our eyes are actually taking in a lot of information about the intensity of light that's in our surrounding area we're really connected to our external environment. And I think in modern society, we've sort of forgotten that, that connection that's there. So that's what our body clock does. One of the main things that our body clock does, which pertains to this conversation, is it really controls timing of sleep, when we sleep. And it really wants us to sleep at a certain time of day.
1: And the evidence, that's really interesting, the evidence then is that sleep is particularly important for our health. I think we've, in the last 20 years, we're just becoming more and more aware of quite how important sleep is.
0: Yeah, I think sleep has really gotten a renaissance, I suppose, in the last 20 years, just because the research has really allowed us to pick apart what sleep is doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we think about, like, well, what is sleep? Okay, well, it's nearly easier to describe what it's not. It's not wakefulness. We're in a very altered uh, state of consciousness. Our ability to sense things and to move is is very much diminished people have this bit of a misconception that sleep is a very sort of passive activity you know it's like turning off your computer putting it to sleep you know nothing is happening but actually that's not what's happening sleep is a highly active highly regulated process there's four stages of sleep. People will be familiar with non-REM sleep versus REM. Non-REM is the deep wave sleep and REM is the, is the dream sleep. But there's four stages in sleep, which takes about 90 to 120 minutes to get through. And in order for us to have a full night's sleep, we need to go through that cycle about five to six times.
1: And that's different than any for at different stages of our lives. So babies spend a huge amount of time in that kind of our REM sleep, that, that dreaming sleep.
0: Yeah, so I think if you ask any parents of newborn babies, they wonder when they sleep. But actually, babies do sleep about you know, 16 to 18 hours a day. Yeah. When you get a little bit older, when you have when child, uh, children who are going to school, they need about 9 to 11 hours of sleep teenagers, and people do forget this because I think teenagers are probably the most sleep deprived in our society. Yeah. Teenagers need eight to 10 hours and then the rest of us, here need about seven to nine hours of sleep. As we get a little bit older, that diminishes a little bit, it's probably between the seven to eight hours of sleep. Okay, that's true. I find for me, it's going the opposite direction. As
1: I get older, I seem to need more. So we'll come <laughs> back in a moment to look at how we could improve our sleep. So we're looking at this amazing system that we have, which is very subtle, very sophisticated, physical our physical systems our mental systems and how these interact with each other. It's, it's awe-inspiring, all, it's all really, when you get into the science of it. If we start to think about how we improve matters, for ourselves then coming out of this, hopefully coming out of this pandemic. Helen, can I come back to you on that? So you're saying there's been a pandemic of lack of activity. What's your advice to people watching uh, about how we can improve then the amount of exercise, the amount of physical activity, I presume, that, that we're, we're taking?
2: Yeah, and I think it might be worth just reminding everybody what the guidelines say about how much physical activity is required because there are guidelines, really clear guidelines for adults and for children. And so for adults, um, 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity. So of course, people will say, well, what do we mean by moderate intensity? So that's where your heart rate's a little bit faster, you're breathing a little bit faster and you feel a little bit warmer. And people can gauge that themselves. Or um, if, or people can do less time but more vigorous. So, 75 minutes of vigorous level activity is is uh, comparable to the 150 minutes, and you know that was previously described as 30 minutes five days a week. And that doesn't sound like much, but yet um, approximately a third of our population of our adult population do reach that level, which means two thirds don't. So that's a really high proportion that aren't even reaching those um, minimal guidelines. And then for children, children should be physically active every day for at least 60 minutes. And of course, the other emerging area really is that we're we're now becoming more sedentary. And that's again, our lifestyle is is kind of enforcing all these sedentary type of behaviours. And as well as moving more, we also should be sitting less and we should be breaking up our sitting time. So, you know, you've mentioned the pandemic there. We've had a lot of people, you know, in, in confined to their home for long periods of time. They were more sedentary. You know, research has shown that, you know, I suppose kind of across the population, physical activity did reduce. Um, and now people have to try and get back into a routine of, of first of all, increasing the physical activity that they were at beforehand. But for some people, they weren't even at that level of physical activity. So I think of physical activity, and well, it's not just me, it's the research shows this, but it is a behaviour. You know, physical activity is something that we should just kind of do automatically. We shouldn't think about it. So, for example, the person sitting at their desk at work should be in a routine of getting up every 30 minutes and just doing a quick move around, a quick stretch, just just getting themselves out of that position. Lots of research have looked at what are the barriers to physical activity. And there are lots, but I, I guess you could co- bring it down to two kind of common ones, which are time and motivation. And so time is a problem. Everybody has busy lives. So we have to make physical activity become part of our lives. So there are lots of little examples of how you could do that. So for example, if you are commuting to work on on public transport, you could get off the bus one stop earlier and walk the rest of the way. If you have a a stairs and an escalator in front of you, take the stairs. That's kind of a no-brainer. Even when you're doing your housework, you know, you could be a little bit more... um, vigorous about it or your DIY or your gardening and just get that heart rate up a little bit, you know, push the lawnmower a little bit faster. Um, So there are lots of simple examples of doing that, but, but it does require a little bit of thought and a bit of planning and it has to become routine. And so the motivation is the second barrier for a lot of people. And sometimes it is just trying to get going. And, you know, uh, Trudy has mentioned there the importance of relationships. So having some peer support, I think, would would be really helpful. So, you know, a family member, a friend, all you need is one other person to say, we're going to go out for a walk, you know, 10 minutes around the block, um, just to kind of stretch our legs and get moving. And, you know, for some people who are doing minimal levels of activity, you know, start with something small. It doesn't have to be you know, 30 minutes, five days a week, it start with five minutes, three days a week, you know, start with with something rather than nothing. So um, there are lots of other ways of trying to increase your physical activity. I think it has to be picking something you enjoy doing. So if people do want to take up a new activity, I think there's plenty of choice out there, but you have to want to do it. Um, so there are just some of the, the examples.
1: That's so interesting, and I think the really interesting thing—I think the research shows that I'm right—and that any activity is better than none. So. People don't feel they have to kind of run a marathon. You can start start easy and, and as you say, carry on.
2: Exactly. And I think a really important part of that is to set goals. So when we try to change behaviours, one of the common principles of changing behaviour is that we need a target, we need a goal, but it also needs to be a realistic goal. So, for example, there there is no point in saying, oh, I'm going to try and run a marathon, you know, when you don't even run, you know, (laughs) two kilometres. So people do have to be realistic about setting goals but there are plenty of opportunities um, out there and I'll kind of give some guidance about about even good websites to look at. But for example, you know, reward yourself. So if you do set a goal and you get to that goal, which is an achievable goal, you know, set yourself some reward system. And the, the the resources that I'm really referring to are Healthy Ireland. They are just fantastic resources. And um, at the moment now, they have an initiative called Let's Get Back, and that is really exactly what we're talking about tonight. Let's get people back to the physical activity, to the exercise that they were doing before this pandemic.
1: That's that's really really helpful. And that uh, just to link that to what Trudy has been saying then about relationships, we've talked you talk about you know running together or walking together a lot of people have done that. What about if we take that relationships, we know relationships are very important for health, how do people develop positive relationships and and, and maintain them uh, in as much as we possibly can?
3: Yeah it's a great question um, and, and, and it changes across the age groups um, but one of the things we know that's really important for developing healthy relationships is our ability to play so developmentally, we have to play. Play has a huge role in making us good at being social. So especially for young people, they need time to play, and that's free, unstructured play, where they decide the activity And the next step. They have to negotiate roles and boundaries together without adult intervention. And that's a really important thing for young people. Then for the rest of us as adults, it, it, the, the good news is that you don't have to be in a long-term romantic relationship. That's not the only way to have healthy and positive interactions in terms of relationships. And Barbara Fredrickson's work is really important on this. And what she tells us is that we can have micro moments of positivity resonance, positive connection, among people that we meet for small moments and even among strangers. And that happens when we make connection through eye contact, smiling and positive regard that you share in this moment. And her research is really interesting because um, positive emotions, such as connection are quite small in terms of their impact. And she's found ways to measure those impacts biologically. So she's shown the impact on our systems and, and how when we smile at each other and when we make eye contact, how there's an increase in oxytocin and that feels good. It's very calming. It helps us feel more connected. And the thing is, these things happen together. When we feel connected, we feel more positive. When we feel more positive, we're more likely to connect. So it's a cycle. So sometimes, especially if after being in isolation and a lot of people talk about this, I'm feeling in a funk. I haven't been connecting with people. How do I get out of it? And in a way they're answering their own question. You haven't been connecting with people. That might be the first thing to do. And that's often just getting out and about, nodding, waving to a neighbour, smiling at the person in the shop that you're having an interaction with, making eye contact in the retail setting and starting with small steps to reconnect with people. It, it's not about having twenty friends and joining clubs and having this huge circle around you. It's in the small interactions in our community and in our daily lives. That's, that's very important.
1: interesting. It, it does make you wonder a bit, Trudy, about kids, you know, who are connected on their phones all the time, but not connecting directly with each other, uh, you know, on a, in in the in the real world, so to speak.
3: It it it's really important to address this and start to look at it. it Technology is great in that it opens up a whole world for us, but it does impact in that it reduces our opportunity for real-life interaction. And we know, especially for young people, real-life interaction is essential for their development. The British Psychological Society at the moment have a campaign running called Time to Play, where they're advocating for 10 minutes extra in the school day of playtime. And they have a huge position paper on the benefits of this for young people's emotional and psychological development. It's a tiny thing, really but we really need to look at it. Yeah.
1: So, Helen, for many people uh, watching, you know, be interested in encouraging children to increase their physical activity. Now, what, what would your advice be in relation to that?
2: Yeah, well, we can certainly apply a lot of the principles for adults to children, but there may be some, some differences. So, first of all, you know, the parent being a role model is really important. So if you're physically active and your child see you enjoying that, they are more likely to do that. Um, Also, children like play. Again, Trudy has has mentioned really nicely about the importance of play. And play could be active play. So again, you know, games that will encourage physical activity. Even if we look at simple ball games, you know, within those ball games, particularly for younger children, we have the, the development of fundamental movement skills, kicking, throwing, catching. Um, And, you know, organised sport is an option and it's not for everybody. Not every child wants to take part in sport, but we have some really inclusive organisations in Ireland and the GAA, I think, is just a perfect example of that. If you go out on a Saturday or Sunday morning to any, any GAA pitch, you will see like hundreds of kids just playing with each other. Again, it's fostering those relationships, the socialization, and it's not serious. It's just getting them moving, getting them having a bit of fun. Um, so you know, they are some of, I think, my, my kind of key principles for children. Again, there are lots of resources online to help parents in terms of, of navigating this, this massive area. Um, but I think most important, children have to enjoy what they're doing and then they're more likely to continue to do it.
1: And what you're both saying there, really, for in terms of both physical activity and social relationships, we, we we've got to work on it a bit. I mean, it's we've got to be a little bit proactive. Now, Annie, the same thing. If I could turn to you, if we if we can start to look at what's stopping us getting enough sleep, and then what do we do about it? How do we increase the amount of sleep we get? And I presume the quality of sleep is the is the important.
0: Thing. Yeah. So it kind of feeds into to what both Helen and Trudy said. So. Probably in today's society, what's really stopping us getting enough sleep is this this 24-7 society that we live in, this constant go, Um, and also our relationship with light. And I know I spoke about this because light impacts our body clock. If you impact your body clock, you impact your ability to, to get sleep. And one simple tip that I would give is to really try to live bright days and dark nights, but in modern society with technology, that's really been turned on its head. If we think about like we've only been living with electricity for the last hundred years, and that's like a drop in the ocean in comparison to how long we've been on this earth. But even when electricity came, you know, the electric lights were, were above us, were on walls. Then even with the age of, of television, the television was maybe seven or eight feet away from us, that light source. But now, where is our light source? It's in our hand. It's the smartphones that are in our hands. And they're emitting a lot of very um, detrimental blue light because it's detrimental to our sleep at the absolute wrong time because we're looking at our smartphones right before we go to bed. So this light source has come into our hands, and it's now actually gone into our bedrooms as well. So that's one real big issue about what's um, preventing us from getting sleep. There's also a real commercial drive for us not to sleep. So if we think about Netflix, so the CEO of Netflix said that its biggest competitor was sleep and that they were winning. They, They don't want you asleep. They want you awake. So there's a real commercial drive. And then as well as that, the final thing is, as we age, our ability to stay asleep changes as well. So they're, they're the real factors that are impacting us in getting the full night's sleep that we need. That's very
1: interesting. And you, you don't think about that, the, the role of commercial systems. Because, of course, you can't be buying things online if you're asleep. You can't be buying so, yeah. things.
0: You can't yeah. be clicking on ads. You can't be doing you know, any of those things. So in a way, you know, these, the smartphones, it's a double whammy. They're emitting the light. But they're also like really, their drive is to keep you awake and active.
1: That's very interesting. What do you think the impact of the pandemic then has been on our sleep? It's been been quite variable.
0: It's been, the pandemic has been, there's been good aspects to the pandemic and bad aspects. And really to to pick up on what Trudy said, one of the, the negative aspects of the pandemic has been an increase in anxiety. And it's probably, as Trudy said, it's, it's lack of connection, lack of that soothing, um, soothing soothing effect on our systems. And certainly we can see from the research that with the pandemic, anxiety levels, especially more so in, in females than in males, really went up. Mm-hmm. That didn't necessarily impact so much on how long we slept, but it really did impact on the quality, You know, the quality sleep and the consolation of, our, of the sleep that we had. Now, there's other data that would show that, well, with the pandemic, we've, we've not much more flexible schedules. And that's a really good thing for our body clock and our sleep. The fact that we're not, you know, socially driven to be at a place at a certain time, that really helps people who are larks versus owls. So that can maybe align us more closely with our natural circadian rhythms, by our body clock rhythms. And that can be a good thing. But the only thing that we have to remember is there's a bit of inequity with that as well, because people who work shift work, they don't have the luxury of, you know, changing their schedule. So 20% of the population work shift work, It's very detrimental to their sleep, it's very detrimental to their health, and actually more individuals who are uh, at l- in lower socioeconomic status they're more likely to work shift work as well. So so they may not benefit from the blended working and more flexible schedules that we're talking about yeah. all the time.
1: That's, that's really interesting. I, I think all three, three of you are saying, you know, we, we've been through a tough time with the pandemic. We are, there is a sense we're coming out of this. And there's a sense that we do need to take, you know, control, if we like, over our physical activity, over our sleep. And by doing so, that helps us to actually make this transition back into a, a normal or as, as normal a life as possible. W- would that be a fair comment?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think that's the thing, we need to take responsibility. Yeah. And it can be scary. And I know a lot of people have questions around how to overcome that, that anxiety, but we know from, from psychology there's a t- treatment for OCD Um, that's called exposure and response prevention. So you need to expose yourself to the anxiety creating situation and prevent your anxious response. So you stop yourself from doing the thing that you would normally do when you're anxious. And in a way we need to start doing that now going back out into the world. We need to tolerate the feeling of anxiety, not turn back into the house. Yes,
1: yeah. so so I'm anxious, but I'm able to imagine. And I presume help children then to to tolerate that as well. It's really Uh, important.
3: We have to, as adults, as parents and caregivers, be able to tolerate our own anxiety around this so that we can support children and help them co-regulate their anxiety wow. and, and soothe them, but we can't soothe them unless we can soothe ourselves.
1: Yeah, there's a kind of hidden cost to this for kids who've been told you can't interact with other children. You got to be, and now all of a sudden we're we're back trying to get good. Okay, so as we're coming to the end, then I, what I'd like to do is get the, the kind of the key take-home messages that we, we can go with if we're going to take something for ourselves on our health from. Uh, today's session, Helen. Could, could I start with you? What would your your key take-home messages be for for people watching uh, this My Health uh, episode?
2: Well, hopefully, I've sold the benefits of physical activity for starters. And if you're if you're somebody who really isn't in a routine of doing that, first of all, start somewhere. Start you know with small amounts. Small amounts is better than no amounts. And you know, if you have children um, who are also have lost their physical activity levels or reduced their physical activity levels because of all of the things that have happened in the last 18 months, you know, you being a role model for that child will also help their physical activity. Um, so that would be my first, uh, my first point. And then really it's about set set a realistic goal. You know, start small, set something that's achievable, um, and then as I said there, reward yourself for that. Um, I think we have to you know, use, uh, in coming back to Annie's point, I think we have, you know, the outdoors is is, is going to kind of hit both elements of of, um, of sleep and body clocks and also physical activity. And, you know, people will often say, oh, well, the weather is not, it's terrible in Ireland. And I think you, you really have to overcome that barrier if you're going to live in Ireland and try to keep physically active, you know, so buy a good rain jacket and uh, a warm coat in the winter and a warm hat and and get out and enjoy the outdoors. And the one thing that really um, struck me in the pandemic, particularly when we were in our 5K restrictions, was seeing families, entire families out. Um, and I was seeing the kids on their scooters and their bikes, and I was seeing the parents walking beside them, and I was seeing teenage kids walking with their parents. And I actually thought that was fantastic. So here we were seeing now, uh, it's coming back to the Trudy's point about relationships. We were seeing the family unit now, um, you know, doing physical activity together. So, you know, I think that's another really good way of, of trying to increase physical activity, have that peer support, your family, and your friends. And I suppose my final tip is there are so many resources out there and you want to go to trusted resources and trusted um, information. So the World Health Organization has lots of fact sheets about physical activity. Uh, Healthy Ireland is a fantastic resource, which is very Ireland specific and can link you to loads of sports partnerships and loads of resources that are available in Ireland. So really, it's just about you know, making that first step. That's
1: that's, and we can put those sites up on our on on, on our own website for, for people who want to follow through. Thanks very much for that, uh, Trudy. Same question to you. you. You know, for people watching us, thinking about this, and maybe saying I might I might want to do something, you know, out of this to improve my relationships, maintain relationships. What would your takeaway advice be for people?
3: Yeah, it, it it's incredibly basic in a way that good relationships start with eye contact. And many of us, we find ourselves at home, our partner, our children are talking and we're stuck into the screen and we're nodding or answering. Put down the screen, make eye contact, smile, respond to the people who are around you. Get out of the house, find people to make eye contact with outside. Be adventurous, take those steps and start with that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. For young people, then, I think it's important for parents and caregivers. We know that other young people are important, but adults are important as well. And as teenagers turn away from their parents and caregivers, they, all, they need other adults that they can turn to. And we lost that opportunity to connect with extended family, neighbours, other adults in the community. So make time for young people to reconnect with the adults in their lives as well as time for them to play with their peers. That would be my suggestion. And and
1: Trini, what about for people who have have experienced loneliness and, you know, are on their own now? How how do they start to, is there anything they can do to help move out from
3: that? Yeah, I I think there's two things. The first one is obviously to move out from that. But that starts with maybe just an acknowledgement of the the realistic pain that is caused by loneliness. It's very detrimental and it's very painful. And it's, it's a stress response. When we're lonely, we feel stressed and we feel under threat. So I think to acknowledge that is, is a big part of that because we can't move out of that stress state until we realize we're stressed. Yes. So to acknowledge it, to have some self-compassion and to look at some self-compassion techniques to soothe our bodies yes. because it's quite a brave step to get out there and it can be really scary So before we leave, and before we break our isolation, we have to soothe ourselves a little bit. So looking at maybe a loving-kindness meditation where research shows the benefit of that, for giving ourselves some self-love and self-compassion can be a very basic first step.
1: That's very interesting. Thank you very much for that. And Annie, same question for you, you know, when people are thinking about this in terms of the body clock and sleep, what's your take-home advice for people?
0: Yeah. So I love sort of to echo what both Helen and Trudy said. I love this idea of just the middle way. It's very much small steps. So if we think about sleep, we haven't spoken about this here, but, you know, too much sleep is actually as bad as too little sleep. So in a way, we want to try to move into the middle and move into that, you know, that sweet spot of of sleep, good quality, seven to nine hours of sleep. And it really is the small things like our relationship with light. You really have to look at your relationship with light. Are you getting out more during the day? And I would say as well to what Helen said, there's no excuse in Ireland. You know, even though we don't have big, bright, sunny days, it's a lot brighter outside than it is inside. It's much better for us to be outside during the day and then inside in in lower light during the evening time and, and when we're about to go to sleep. I would also say schedule is critical. So, you know, Trudy mentioned we're wired for connection. We're wired for routine. Our body clocks love routine. So that is waking up and going to bed at the same time, pretty much the same time, as boring as it sounds, during the weekdays and during the weekends. Because what's happening now is we're actually giving ourselves a thing called social jet lag, that we have one schedule during the week, we have a very separate schedule during the weekend, and then we have to bring ourselves back onto that new schedule, that work schedule again. And that's causing a lot of issues in terms of our body clock and our sleep. I'd also say, you know, instead of saying, I'm never going to drink coffee again, I would say just, again, the middle way. Can you drink maybe less coffee? Or can you, that maybe your last cup of coffee have that earlier in the day? Caffeine has a half-life of five hours. It takes a long time for us to metabolize caffeine. So even though you might be having a cup of coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon, you think that's not affecting your sleep. It can actually affect your sleep. And then the last thing I would say is, really make sleep a priority. You know, really actually start tracking the hours of sleep that you're having. Get a sleep diary. I would even say set an alarm clock for when you go to bed, not for when you get up so that you have that consistent time of when you go to bed. You're going to wake up naturally when you've had enough sleep. Um, so, and even by tracking the amount of sleep and even journaling, seeing how you're feeling the next day, making a note of that is real positive in reinforcement that you're really seeing the benefits of, you know, good quality sleep and how that's impacting on your life. Like, I think all of these things that we're saying are common sense, but they're not necessarily all common practice. And that's what we have to try to do. We have to practice these things in our lives.
1: So, Annie, you you mentioned the effects of caffeine on our sleep. A lot of people will be asking themselves, what's the effect of alcohol on our sleep? What's your advice in relation to alcohol and sleep?
0: Yeah, so there's a bit of a misconception out there as well that alcohol promotes sleep. You know, we hear about the the nightcap and all of that. And in reality, actually, alcohol inhibits sleep. It doesn't allow us to go into the regular sleep. It's more of a sedative type of state that we're in under alcohol. And as well as that, one thing about alcohol is it really kills our REM sleep. So I think people may have experienced, especially as you get to middle age and older, that if you've had a couple of drinks, you actually wake up at about 4am in the morning, bright as a button. Well, not bright, but just can't get back to sleep. And that's because that's when we consume most of our REM sleep. And that's really impacted by alcohol.
1: That's very. And REM sleep is particularly important for, for our health. Yeah.
0: Well, REM sleep is really. Really, the creative part of our health, or of of the sleep, you know, it really gives us, you know, inspiration, creativity, even sort of the courage to go out and make connections. That's all impacted then by our REM sleep.
1: That's fantastic. Thanks very much for for that, Ali. So that concludes our our discussion uh, of the first three pillars of lifestyle medicine in relation to this. Transition phase from the pandemic. Uh, my sincere thanks to our guest experts, uh, Dr. Annie Curtis, uh, Dr. Trudy Meen, and uh, Dr. Helen French. So, in part two of the, this discussion on lifestyle factors and, and health and well being, we're going to focus on the other three pillars of lifestyle medicine uh, diet and nutrition, stress reduction, and harmful substance use. Further details of the upcoming uh, My Health Lectures can be found on the RCSI website.
0: Thank you for listening to RCSI My Health. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health-related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash My Health Lectures.